she chop and broccoli chop and broccoli chop and broccoli she chop and broccoli she chop and broccoli 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 She tried to Yeah, I think he's sort of like um, Bach in in that way that every note he wrote, even Mozart, every note that Chopin wrote has has meaning as in as and is important. Welcome to And If Love Remains. I'm your host, Mike Levitt. And uh, um, I'm, we get a chance again to have Dr. Elias Pedersen on the show. Um, he's been on so many times that he's like a regular, and I'm very excited um, to have him on because last time we talked about Beethoven and his 250th anniversary of his birth. And today we get to talk about Chopin and the 210th anniversary of his birth. And... Um, you know, I think for, as far as pianists, I mean, you have like a list and you have, I, to me, Chopin and Liszt are like the quintessential p- uh, piano composers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm excited to talk to Elise about that. You're going to hear some of his performance of it that you can find on YouTube at um, just look up Elias Axel Pedersen and you will find his YouTube stream and you'll find that performance there. It's a fine, fine, very good performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but welcome to the show, Elias. Thanks, Mike. Uh, it's great to be back. I love doing these podcasts with you and delving into the composers themselves, their lives, and going kind of seeing their life through one of their great works. 
people oh, yeah. got quite a spectac- spectacular work today. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I agree. I think it's the best way to talk about and really um, celebrate a great composer's life is to actually, you know, look, you know, we can always go through a bunch of them, but if we can delve into one and, and really see what makes him unique and why that, why that piece is, is great. I think it's an important thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about Mr. Chopin. Um, sure. I, I kind of made, I made an assertion at the beginning that the Chopin is probably, you know, if not the, one of the quintessential piano composers that we have in western music would you agree with that assertion? oh oh yeah i mean i he's one of those composers that every pianist plays uh he doesn't have a lot of simple works i would say i'm trying to think maybe one of the early, like this g minor polonaise and even those are sort of late elementary early intermediate then most of his works are late intermediate intermediate to advanced um, but at some point every pianist uh, has played chopin and I would say most of them love it. Uh, I occasionally encounter a pianist who doesn't really love Chopin, but it's it's rare because he he writes so idiomatically for the instrument, um, and it's so natural. Oh, he definitely does. So, yeah. So and he wrote really yeah, exclusively absolutely. for piano. He mo- most of these composers, you know, last time we talked about Beethoven, and um, now we're looking at the next generation or even a, two generations after Beethoven, and. Uh, with all the different genres he wrote in symphonies and, and operas and, you know, Mozart wrote in all these genres. Um, Chopin really wrote for the piano exclusively. Now, he did write songs. He did write um, a couple of piano concerti and some other works like the Krakowiak for piano and orchestra. And he wrote the cello sonatas towards the end of his life. But all of those those works include piano as a pretty prominent uh, or the dominating factor of them. Uh, even in the cello sonata, it's it's very thick and rich and sort of piano dominant almost. Why so, do you think that is? Why he only wrote for piano? I don't know. I there, it's hard to say. His lifestyle. If we're looking at Liszt and Chopin, for example, they were born a year apart, and the other couple around that time. I mean, that that eighteen oh nine to eighteen eleven time was was ripe with uh, with talent, I guess, because Mendelssohn was born eighteen oh nine. Schumann and uh, and Chopin were both born in 1810, um, and then list 1811. And not to mention that Schumann, um, who ended up marrying Clara Schumann, very similar in age, uh, she was born, you know, just a few years few years after. Wow! Great musical talent. And then Mendelssohn had a phenomenal, phenomenally gifted sister who was born, who we kind of forget about, but she's making more of a resurgence for her pieces, and people are playing that more. I mean, she was born around the same time too so just a lot of great musicians born That's remarkable very close yeah and if you compare someone like chopin and list um their public careers were so different list was such a public musician traveled all around the world you know played uh, probably thousands of concerts uh you know in many countries basically all of western europe the most i would say most of eastern europe even in russia he was well received um where chopin performed very little in public he you know he was of course he moved to uh, to paris after the uh, after the revolution in um or right before the revolution rather in poland and he never returned to his homeland which was a source of a lot of anxiety and, and stress in his life we can get into that uh, but he mostly played in small parisian salons and uh, for small audiences not not that big audiences and kings and queens that uh, list would play for 
So I don't know if that affected his, like it's a chicken or egg story. Did that public persona and his his performing um, life really affect the way he wrote for piano or vice versa? Or they probably a little bit of each. Um, right. He was certainly a fine pianist uh, for sure. He was one of the greatest at the time. Uh, Liszt was probably the greatest and probably Talberg as well around that time. But Chopin was was a fine musician and pianist. What, um, so so I, just to kind of put some things into context, because mm -hmm. we talked about Beethoven before, um, you know, Beethoven dies, what, at 1805? Oh, so, okay, so yeah. that late. So he dies 1827. Chopin is born in 1810. Mm -hmm. um, and and so he's he really is the next part of that next generation of coming out of the the, the classical era and, and kind of developing this. Ro I, I doubt mm -hmm. they called it the Romantic era at the time. Not yet, right? But what we, what we would call the Romantic era of music, you have the, these these composers that come out of that. Can you speak to? I I don't know if if you've looked yeah. at that much. To, can well, you speak to where his where that comes from? Yeah, I mean, to put him in some historical context, I would say he is kind of two generations after Beethoven because Beethoven was already composing, really. He was born in, you know, 1770, so in the 1790s. Uh, he was composing and having students. Cherney was probably his most prominent. And then people like Cherney, uh, those were the, the teachers of the next generation uh, coming up, you know, like Chopin and Liszt. But um, certainly Chopin... I don't think he ever met Beethoven, but he would have been a teenager when, when Beethoven passed away. The, the news uh, might have reached him even in Poland, and certainly he would have known when he moved to Paris. So I think he moved to Paris when he was 18 or 19. I can't exactly remember. But uh, in any case, that, that transition, you know, you've got a lot of great composers like Beethoven, the visionaries, and even Schubert, who died uh, one year later, 1828, who kind of straddle that uh, that time period we now call classical and romantic eras. Uh, and so a lot of their music was was forward-looking and had a lot of what we would say romantic elements to them. Uh, if you think of Beethoven's late piano sonatas, late symphonies, you know, there's a lot of romanticism in there. Schubert late sonatas, especially the last three or four, uh, pretty amazing. And so Chopin really came from that, from that tradition. Um, and kind of developed it further. I think the main things that Chopin developed uh, were, it, it's just in terms of compositional, the harmonic language, he really took to another level. Yes. And then we have to consider too, uh, putting them in historical perspective, the development of the piano, the actual yes. hardware. And we talked before about Beethoven's hardware, you know, when he was talking with Broadwood, his piano makers and, and what was capable on their keyboards. Uh, by the time Chopin arrived, you know, we're getting into major pianos, much, much bigger pianos, larger sound, larger range. Um, by the time he was performing, and certainly by the time Lisp was performing, and Lisp way outlived, long outlived Chopin. He died in uh, 1886, and Chopin died in 1849. So by the time Lisp was performing at the end of his career, it, the piano virtually hasn't changed since then. You know, since the 1850s or 60s, the piano hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot. Um, and so the the requirements for a big hall, for example, who they were playing to, all those things sort of coalesced in this in this time frame. But they were changing a lot from the end of Beethoven's career to the beginning of Chopin and Liszt's career. Right. Um, so I think that affects a lot of their musical compositions, their style, um, the range. And you'll see in this piece, especially, 
it's just a huge range of dynamics and and the notes themselves there's a bigger stretch and spread than you would find in in almost any beethoven sonata so, so, what, so how would you um, characterize it? Like if for somebody who, who may be um, maybe not quite, you know, they've heard the term romantic, they've heard the term mm-hmm. classical, like what would be the elements that you would be looking for orally to, um, to say, okay, this is, this is what a, a romantic piece, this is what you should hear. This is, um, you know, these are the, the developments that Chopin lists, um, mm-hmm. Schumann, you know, that, that they, that they really kind of, in, in a way built upon what Beethoven kind of, started as a foundation but but what what, when we say romanticism in in terms of music what are we listening to what does that mean it's a good question because you know you can take a whole music appreciation or music history course just on that just on the aspects what what things were looked for in the classical period um what kind of forms you know form was very important and um Right. We also can look at music uh, as it develops in different in different eras and kind of goes up and down in terms of complexity, simplicity. So if we look at even earlier from Renaissance music and how it got more and more complex, you know, you have like Orlando de Lasus at the end and getting towards Bach and the Baroque uh, culminating in that and getting extremely complex. And then all of a sudden the classical period Comes through. I mean, it doesn't hit at one date, obviously, and certainly composers right. don't want to be pigeonholed. But things come in, in and out of fashion, you know. Right, right. But uh, classical really pared things down. The simplicity, um, looking at more of the the form, uh, the sonata form was kind of developing around that time. Other genres, we were moving away from, or music was moving away from the courts into more the kings and queens and the private halls and, and eventually larger audiences and the public in this, you know, 100-year transition. So in the classical right. period, things got much simpler at the beginning. If you think of early Mozart, early Haydn, um, late even C.P.E. Bach, which was one of Bach's sons, um, and even his grandsons who were composers. And then that kind of gets more and more complex as you get into late Haydn, late Mozart, into Beethoven, into late Beethoven and Schubert. Um, that really gets much more dense and complex. And uh, I guess... That's moving into the the romantic era. We also have to keep in mind the arts. Usually, um, they fo- so the musical arts, the oral arts, usually follow the visual and the written arts uh, in their development. So often, the first the first wave of, of new artistic development comes in the form of poetry and books. You know, who are the Heinrich Heine and, and these kinds of uh, poets that were coming about, and uh, and then visual arts. You know, what was Baroque visual artistry and, and architecture. And then music sort of follows after that. So um, the romantics were were developing, the, the great writers, uh, Balzac and things like that. Uh, and music sort of took, uh, took that as inspiration. Even some of the musicians of this era, like Liszt and Schumann and, and late Schubert, they wrote pieces based on the poetry of these, these new romantic, let's say, poets. Um, and so it's looking at different aspects of the music. Maybe harmony is thicker. Maybe it's more dense. Maybe it's more chaotic. Um, it's not so. It's not so pared down and formalized. And you know, four plus four plus eight plus sixteen kind of thing, mm-hmm. where you get that a lot in Mozart. Um, even keys. You know, we think of a piece in a certain key. Whenever you hear a thing on a piece on the radio, oh, it's in G major. And in classical music, a piece would start in G major and it would end in G major. In the Romantic era, you often don't get that necessarily. You know, I, I played 
a Chopin fantasy. It starts in F minor. It ends in A flat major. And it's clearly an A flat major, you know, huge ending section, coda and everything. And you're setting up A flat. So do you call it the fantasy in F minor or fantasy in A flat major? They're related right. keys, obviously, for, you know, those of you that want to get really into music theory, A flat major, same key signatures as F minor. But, uh, they have a but very the keys different are very different. It def- yeah. it de- you, you will feel a big difference when you hear something F minor versus A flat major. Right, right. So how do you, you know, characterize those pieces? It starts to break down some of the preconceived notions we have and boundaries and, and the way we even describe things or ascribe keys to pieces. So, yeah, a lot of those, those traits from the classical period started to morph or started to become less relevant or less important and other characteristics came to the fore. Um, one of the one of the things that, that I think is important, and you mentioned it before, you know, moving moving the the performance of music from the courts to the concert halls. I think that also um, really dictated a lot of um, what composers were writing for. In other words, it, it went from um, mm-hmm. you know almost background courtier music to a a a a show for the for the populace, and it's almost become mm-hmm. a populist show, which which means that it became both more. It, this is how I would say it: more earthy mm-hmm. in a way, like mm-hmm. it's more more to the people, and also um, a he a much. Um, bigger emphasis on the performer, lots of flamboyance, yeah. lots yeah. of big chords, lots of things that's, that's going to give the performer the opportunity to, to, for lack of a better word, show off. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much in there that you bring up. I am just going through my mind. You know, we have to still keep in mind that, um, that e- even by Liszt's time and later Chopin years, I mean, he, he died at 39. So he was really in the, the peak years of his compositional output, but he, he just, you know, unfortunately had bad health most of his life. But um, it's not to say that this music or classical music was becoming um, sort of accessible to all to all the masses. You know, you still had to be able to probably live in a city where there was an orchestra or some hall and and, um, have money to see a concert. But it was certainly more uh, economical. And, And there was a growing middle class, too. This is huge growth when we have industrial revolution and, and a Absolutely. lot of things are changing so so just general wealth is is increasing um you've still got the big patrons you've still got people that are uh you know court courtiers holding concerts but now you've got private salons in paris i mean that whole salon world opened up and and well of course wealthier people would host them and have their friends over but this opened up a lot a lot of spaces and places to play and perform and and as you say, show off. You know, if we think of music, classical music, uh, even a hundred years before, it was mostly background. Um, it was entertainment, and it was entertainment during eating or something like. So, so if we think of a king going to a Monteverdi or a Palestrina opera, um, it was usually there. They'd probably be eating, maybe playing a game of chess with their friends in their in their box, and going in and out. You know, it was a two or three, four hour long <laughs> opera, and that was what it was. And and the focus wasn't on the music. By the time you get to late Beethoven, I mean, he really brought it to, okay, I'm the performer. I'm going to play a recital of my stuff. But even in his day and age, if you went to a concert, um, you might not hear a full Beethoven sonata. You might hear a couple movements. You might hear uh, see a dance number. You might hear a chamber music piece. It'd kind of be a, a mix. And then people like Liszt were really the, the forerunners or frontrunners who – 
who took it upon themselves to just play a full recital themselves, you know, and Liszt took it a step further and played it by memory. So that wasn't really the, the case before. You just used music, used the score in front of you. Um, even, I even the, think Liszt is the first rock star. Yeah, he, he was. Um, maybe Paganini, actually, I would, I would say. Sure, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, same time era frame, and it's violin versus piano, and, you know, both of them were said to have made pacts with the devil, sold, right. sold their soul to be able to play as, as demonic. Perfect rock star story. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. Um, the, the fawning over, we think about the craze that we have, at least in the States more than in other countries, but this craze over celebrity and celebrityism and the whole 15 right. minutes of fame. I mean, we're, I think it's, it's kind of laughable, but it's sad to, to see people that just fawn over and cry when they meet a, a celebrity. Um, that's what happened with people like List and, but, you know, and Paganini. The more things change, the more the more things stay the same. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, he would play concerts, and he'd he'd throw his gloves off. He always had a pair of white gloves he wore, and he'd throw them off, and women would fight over the gloves. Um, when I was in <laughs> Maryland, I, I went to the University of Maryland for my master's, and there's the uh, IPAM International Piano Archives at Maryland, which is a phenomenal resource there. And, and the curator uh, Donald Manildi is a good friend and really helped me a lot doing, uh, during my master's work, uh, looking for obscure things and introducing me to a lot of stuff. Uh, and anyway, they own, I think a lock of Liszt's hair, something like that. Uh, and I, I never saw it. It's in a glass container. It's in a, you know, sealed location and all that, but it's crazy. I People would keep locks of, of hair. You know, <laughs> th these were rock stars. So yeah, it was kind of getting into more, more of the populace, the, <laughs> The piano was changing. The the times were changing. The, the society well, was changing rapidly. And I think that's the other thing. Like the piano. I, now again, I, I'm I'm going off what I think, so I, so mm -hmm. I could be wrong. But but the but the piano because of the nature of how the instrument developed, it became the the quintessential. Um, well, let me put it this way: mm -hmm. you could you could have a fantastic piano recital and and express <laughs> a lot of what you need to express without having to hire an entire orchestra. You could do it right. now on the piano. Right, well, that, and, that's kind of the nice thing. And, and why and so, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, no, and so, and so you know, and, and along with the, the as you mentioned, the, the um, people becoming richer, like now all of a sudden smaller communities could have a list to come and play. I mean, I, I could just imagine, mm -hmm. you know, you could have some of these, some of these great stars come and play and, and, uh, um, and experience what, what they were experiencing um, it, yeah. it's, just, it's fascinating to think about what it could yeah. have been like. Yeah, he traveled to everywhere in you know, small cities and, and little tours. <clears throat> Actually, the, the whole advent of the piano and the develop of, development of the piano did make the dissemination of a lot of music more accessible. So if we think of just the generation before, two generations before, Mozart and Haydn, who were, who were court musicians in a way, I mean, Haydn was hired by the you know, Prince Esterhazy for most of his life, and uh, had his 104 whatever symphonies performed because he had a court to pay for it and, and musicians to play it. Um, so when you when you get the piano's development, it's getting louder and has a bigger range. You start being able to really get the full range of an orchestra, at least in terms of the notes. And then composers or at least publishers started making arrangements of symphonies mm -hmm. for four hands. So chamber music was becoming more of an, uh, a big thing. Uh, music was going into the homes, piano prices were coming down. 
So your average family, you know, your average, well, more, I would say middle-class to upper middle-class family had a piano. And that was just, that was by default. It was in the drawing room. Everybody played and you didn't have to live in a big city to hear a symphony anymore. You could now buy the publisher's version or edition of the forehand, you know, part and play it at home That's and fine. hear, hear a symphony from, uh, you know, by Beethoven if you lived in a small town. So actually in, during Beethoven's life, a lot of his symphonies didn't get heard by, by that many people, you know, maybe by the end of his life, but they were mostly the upper, uh, upper class and upper middle class and people in large cities. By the time you have Chopin and Liszt, uh, anybody can hear. Even Liszt made transcriptions of, for solo piano of Beethoven's symphonies. They're extremely difficult. But uh, you could buy that and play it and hear what it sounds like and, and have all those sort of instruments at your fingertips. Um, obviously, the timbre is going to be more more similar with the piano, although that it wasn't as similar as it, as it is today. You know, there are many more piano makers with different characteristics and lots of different shadings and tones between the registers nowadays it's much more uniform there are fewer piano makers so it's become more homogenized but um yeah you could you could really ex uh, access all those things just with the piano so it became the dominant instrument in in western classical music and, it and, and that's carried on to today day. where, where just about every home has you know a little upright piano that that you know and and every mother wants their kid to learn to play you know it's, it's really that 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 tradition has mm -hmm. has carried through you know, yeah. through 200 years, just about. Um, so, so going back to, to Liszt and Chopin. Um, so, I, you know, one of the things that you could say is if, if Liszt is, is the Alice Cooper or Ozzy Osbourne of the romantic period, you know, oh. Chopin was probably the, the Robert Smith, the, you know, he was, mm. the, he was the cure. He was, you know, he, that's yeah. how I imagine just this kind of a low key guy. Um, but amazing talent. Um, and 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 really, um, yeah, unfortunately, he did. He lived a short life. Um, mm -hmm. He he suffered, um, you know. I think some heartbreak as well as some health issues. Yeah, um, he had tuberculosis at the end. And, yeah, yeah very, really, really struggled. Yeah. But but he but his music really does carry through to today, and and people love. Um, and which brings us to this this um, this sonata. So not we're going to talk about sonata number three mm -hmm. um, now. Do me a favor and, and and if you can place this sonata kind of in in um, in context of, of his other works. Where where does this fit and and what do we think of when we think about sonata number three? Yeah. So one thing to think about with Chopin, um, and by the way, you mentioned kind of his place with with Liszt. There's a funny quote I think from Liszt where he he said, and they were friends by the way. Although towards the end, uh, I think a lot of people sort of grew jealous or, or hated lists there there was kind of a love-hate relationship and by the way before i forget there's a fantastic biography on chopin I, i've started it it's uh, by alan walker and i mentioned him because he's sort of the, the preeminent scholar for list he wrote the i think the the definitive definitive biography of, of list in three volumes and i read those and uh, he actually judged the Los Angeles International List Competition when I competed like 15 oh, wow. years ago. So he was he was uh, on the panel. But he is, you know, known in the world as sort of a list and one of the Chopin scholars. Another one is like Jim Sampson, but that's a previous generation. But I would highly recommend that that book uh, by Alan Walker. And I here I it's just called Friedrich Chopin. Um, okay. But List said something like, uh, you know, Chopin is the king of pianists. 
And Chopin mm-hmm. turned around and said, it's it's nice for the emperor or something to call me a king in his king his small little <laughs> empire. You know, like clearly, clearly Liszt is, is above all of us, but it's so nice of him to notice me. Um, <laughs> right. You know. But yeah, his his um output, if you if we look at his works, he wrote a lot of character pieces and uh, different genres of works and you can categorize them different ways um i like to look at a lot of the nationalistic aspects because you know keep in mind he he was born in poland but he moved to france and he lived basically in france a little bit in spain the the rest of his life Uh, and he never returned to poland but he always longed to go back um and in fact his his body is buried in a famous cemetery. I can't remember the cemetery's name. It's in Paris, and I actually visited it when I was 12. So I took a picture next to the Chopin. But I think, uh, oh. like uh, some other very famous writers and, and other people are buried there as well. But um, his heart, Chopin's heart, was taken back to Poland and buried there, I think, oh. in, in a church in Warsaw. So, I mean, he, he really, his heart was always in, in Poland. And so if we think of the nationalistic uh, pieces. He has mazurkas, which are national Polish dances. He has polonaises, which are also national Polish dances. Um, he's got waltzes, which aren't not necessarily Polish; they're more Western European. But that's another kind of form of dance, and could be ascribed to some, you know, have some national element to it. So he had those kinds of character pieces. Then he wrote other genres like nocturnes. Uh, he wasn't the originator; that was that was John Field. The Irish composer, but but uh, Chopin really immortalized the nocturne genre. Sure. He wrote you know some fifty odd I don't know nocturnes, and then he wrote preludes, you know, which are just introductory pieces usually. But he wrote an entire set of preludes of twenty four preludes, um, going through the entire uh, cycle of keys. So you start out in C major, and then you do the relative minor A minor, then you go to the fifth the G major, and then E minor, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, was he paying a lot to Bach with that? Yes, but and so if we think of his influences, I was going to get into that too. Um, Bach was a, a big influence, and the other two main influences were Mozart and Bellini, actually. So when we talk about the singing quality of at the piano, that really stems from from this era. And, and with somebody like Chopin, he really strived for that singing tone quality because he loved Bellini is a very famous Italian bel canto opera. A composer, and so we think of bel canto as beautiful uh, singing, beautiful voice, and this really nice line and and more light and airy. Um, although Chopin certainly invigorated some of his his melodies, he he might have been somewhat frail as a person, but his music is is often very robust. Um, yeah, and so he wrote in all these different genres: mazurkas, so I said mazurkas, polonaises, waltzes. Then you get preludes. Um, and then etudes, studies, which completely revolutionized the way we even play piano. Um, it, it took right. it to such an extent. And and then all of those, um, those these were shorter kinds of character pieces, but he wrote longer or medium works like scherzi, scherzos, which are supposed to be little jokes, but they're like eight, eight to nine minutes each. And the ballades, some of which I think the fourth one is 11 or 12 minutes. It's a pretty hefty work. Yeah. Very difficult, and then the fantasy Polonaise fantasy is quite extensive, and the fantasy itself, F minor fantasy, is like 15 minutes, and then you get into the sonatas, and you're looking at 20, 30 minute works, um, very, very large works, and there's uh, concerti are you know 40 minutes or something. So he he ran the gamut from tiny little pieces which last 30 seconds 
to 40-minute long pieces in, in all types of genres. So that's fabulous. Yeah, no, it's and 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 you really can see like um, I, as you mentioned the 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 he his um, focus, I guess. What am I trying to say? The the, the piano really kind of came to age. Came mm-hmm. he, he brought a new quality to the piano that that I think nobody else had brought before. Yeah. Oh, that was the the center of his attention. I mean, Liszt wrote a tremendous amount of works, but he and he, most of it was with piano. But he wrote some symphonic tone poems and uh, and some other pieces with you know, with other instrumentation uh, and not necessarily exclusively for the piano, but, but every piece by Chopin has a prominent, the piano is, is very prominent, if not the solo instrument. Um, so this, so this yeah. is his third sonata that we're going to talk about. Yeah. And, and um, what makes this one unique and, and uh, um, yeah, what, what makes this one unique compared to his other sonatas? Well, you know, he only wrote three. So we were compared, we were talking about Beethoven who wrote 32 and, and this generation, the uh, sonata output was much smaller. They, they were going to other forms, uh, writing, like I said, all the character pieces that Chopin did. Um, and they were they were very extended and, and quite large works. This third sonata, uh, which is Opus 35, uh, thir- sorry, 58, uh, the second sonata, I think, is Opus 35, kind of middle of his, his time. And then he wrote the first sonata, which is very early, Opus 4, and it's funny, nobody plays a first sonata. I've, I've heard it once live, friend of mine, and I've heard a recording or two, but every recording you see of Chopin sonatas, they're usually second and third and maybe some other character pieces along with it. So you often get people recording sets or, or Chopin CDs. It's it's very common to do that. And, and actually, when, when we think about recital programming, which is very important for pianists, there are only a couple composers that you can... I think really create a nice program, a, a diverse program with, and just use that composer's music. So Bach is one example. There's, there's plenty of stuff. I mean, you can do a Mozart as well, do a few sonatas. You could do a few Beethoven sonatas, Haydn sonatas, but, uh, or draw from some of the other, but with Chopin, it's so nice because he has so many different genres that he wrote in and the characters are so diverse that you can oh, do a I set see. of this, a set of this, a set of this, you know, and then so maybe diverse. end. Yeah. So this, when this you, one, when you compared like the funeral march to his funeral march to like the, uh, um, you know, his, mm-hmm. his prelude in A major. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's, very different. Very different. And but 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 each has its own, has its, it, it's got such quality to it. No matter yeah. what the the diversity may be, um, it, it's got that Chopin quality that's just magnificent. Yeah, I think he's sort of like. Um, Bach in, in that way that every note he wrote, even Mozart, every note that Chopin wrote has, has meaning as in, as, and is important. Um, and I discuss this with, uh, with my fiance occasionally about, you know, adding notes or not and, and, and the purist point of view, you know, with Liszt, for example, it's much easier to add octaves for basses and, and add a little extra, you know, trill here, there, whatever. It doesn't really detract, um, you can leave out something from a thick chord. It's not going to really detract. With Chopin, I feel every note is has to be there and, and in, in its place. Mm-hmm. By the same token, I, when I play the um, Ocean Etude, which is the last of the Opus 25 etudes, I sometimes on the return of the theme, I play an extra C in the bass. And that, that's the only time I add an extra octave. <laughs> but um, 
generally you you really want to uh, play what he wrote which will get us into another set uh discussion of editions because you know you're not always sure there are different versions kind of of what right. he wrote and so this this uh to get back to the earlier point this is kind of later in his career this sonata and it really i think encapsulates i think it's the greatest work he has um it's certainly oh. the the biggest piece i've played of his and one of the biggest and most difficult pieces i've ever played um but it just encompasses so much and when you start to play his other Chopin's other smaller works and i've played a lot of character pieces i've played set like i performed a few years back the opus 25 set of etudes I performed a few from the opus 10 um, you start to see all those elements and aspects, technical and musical, put into this sonata. I mean, it's just yeah. jam-packed with everything. Well, and, and there's a lot we could talk about, but when I think of Chopin, as if I were to think, like, what were the characteristics that, that tell me this is a Chopin piece? I think, mm -hmm. for me more than anything, it's a lyrical line and chromaticism. Those are the things uh -huh. that when I think of Chopin, I, I, that's what I think of this. And, and, and a lot of times the chromaticism, you know, can sound a little off-putting, but for some reason, mm -hmm. the way he does it, his voicing and the way that he structures his chords, mm -hmm. it, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's perfect every time. Yeah. I mean, like I was saying, and you're exactly right, chromaticism is sort of an extension of that harmonic language that he's expanding, and he did that even even in his Opus 28 preludes, the second uh, second prelude, it opens to, like ominously. I can't remember. Let me see if I can even go play it. Um, yeah. How can I do this here? I should be set up closer to my piano. Um, but yeah, it's it's just so weird. Hang on, let's, let me see if I can do this. It's, it's like... Uh, I don't remember exactly the notes right now. It's in the mind. Um, but it's, it's so interesting and avant-garde almost it's like that could have been written in the late uh 20th or late 19th century no what am i saying yeah late 1900s um or late 1800s sorry uh yeah, know, yeah. Into, almost into schoenberg but he he really takes chromaticism as you say and, and how things are working together and you think that can't work together and somehow he makes it work together so, he really does yeah, yeah. absolutely and and so let's, let's jump in here. Let's jump into this sure. third sonata. So we start out in this first movement. It's it's Allegro uh, Maestoso. Maestoso is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Maestoso. So a very majestic and um, yeah. fast, you know, Allegro, but not not super fast. I mean, you've got a lot of chords here. This opening theme, doodly bum 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 bum. Again, the sort of majestic side. If we think of uh, Chopin having two sides to his music, the very sensitive. Uh, side where he'd be playing in a very intimate salon and then the concert side the very majestic i guess one could say the polish and the french side although i don't always like mm. to characterize it as such um, right but yeah very majestic opening it's, it's, in, in, b minor, right? it's in b minor correct uh-huh and and structurally the piece holds together very well um he you know it's it's very sectionalized the the sonata movement but it's uh, it, it's still wonderful, and it, I think it holds together. Uh, I think a lot of people at the time, they panned Chopin, and, and even modern critics, they pan him for not being a very good structuralist. 
You know, they say he's great with miniatures, with the small, like the, the etudes and the preludes and all that. But once it gets to a larger work, um, he's not fantastic. And I think part of that criticism um, come like you can see it in the in the uh, in the two piano concerti, the main ones that he wrote, where uh, their orchestration is pretty sparse, and so maybe they're just saying, ah, it's he has kind of some kitschy ways of connecting things. I don't know. I, I don't think that at all. I think the structure of this piece is, is very well planned. Um, the measure numbers and even the timing of those things is very important too, which, which I'll get into when I, when I talk about repeating the exposition. So just a, a recap of what we talked about before the Sonata itself is four movements. So we talked about how Sonata's, developed from being maybe three movements and in Beethoven, Beethoven's day, he really did some two movements, some three movements, four movement sonatas. By the time we get to Chopin, most sonatas are uh, four movements. Uh, Liszt, of course, did one in one movement, but it's sort of a three movement work or four movement, depending on how you, how you look at it. Yeah. But um, this is, is a four movement work. And I think the, the balance of the timing and the structure and the number of measures is so cool. Uh, and when I play, when I perform this piece, you have to ask the question, are you going to take the first repeat? Because there are a lot of themes presented and we'll talk about that, how Chopin kind of expands that from like the one theme, two theme or theme one, theme two presented. And I think he even presents a theme three uh, in the exposition. Um, and uh, so, so you have the, anyway, the exposition, which he is a first part, of this movement, and usually in a sonata form, in a sonata, the sonata form is the first movement. So it's an exposition, then a development section, which develops the themes from the exposition, and then the recapitulation section, which brings back themes from the uh, the exposition, but all in the original key. Okay, so that's just right. a brief overview of the sonata form. But then on a larger scale, if you look at the whole four movements as like a form, the first movement is the same length as movements two, three, and four put together if you do the first repeat. Uh, in uh, the so so I actually chose to do that repeat uh, for one other reason, which I'll mention. But if you do that exposition repeat, it's a long exposi- exposition. It's about four minutes, four and a half minutes. And so most people that play this, um, this work don't do the repeat. And so the first movement's about uh, 10 minutes, 10 or 11 minutes. And then the remaining uh, three movements end up being about 15 minutes. So you've got like a 25-minute sonata, 26-minute sonata. When I performed it, I, ch- I chose to do the first repeat, which adds another four to five minutes. So then you get a 15-minute first movement and 15-minute second, third, fourth movement. So you've got a 30, well, I think my recording is 32 minutes. Um, and so the, the balance is very nice. That uh, is nice. Yeah, so that's cool. The other reason I did it was when we get back, uh, when we talk about the, or when I mentioned the idea of different editions, um, we have to keep in mind at this time there were different copyright laws, and there still are uh, throughout the world, but in different countries. So England had their own copyright laws, uh, Germany had its own copyright laws, and France had its own. So when Chopin would publish a piece, he might publish it in three different countries so he could get royalties from those different countries. Right, uh, and, and so he might send it to one publisher in France, and they might change a tiny little thing, maybe a note here or a note there, and then he'll send it to somebody in Germany, and they'll change one note here or there. And so occasionally you get 
different notes. And they're they're pretty they're minor sometimes, but in this sonata, it's it's interesting because there's a Meissonier edition that was published in France in Paris in 1845, and it has at the end of the exposition, there's this what we call closing material, and um, and it, it's totally different for about two measures. And let me see, I actually got my score out because when I was studying this, I heard. I think the the reason I heard this was I, I listened to a recording. I think it was Eric Olson, who's okay. one of the great great American pianists. He won the Chopin. I think he was the first American to win the Chopin competition. Um, and he played this, and he took the repeat, which already was rare. Um, and then he got to this section, and he played different notes than I'd learned. I was like, oh my gosh, that's terrible! You know, this great pianist put this recording on YouTube, and he completely messed up in this, these two measures. And then I realized somebody in the comments had said he used the rare 1945 Messonnier edition for that. And then I looked, and it's available on IMSLP. So let me see which measures that's at. I should have just prepared this. Um, Oh, yeah, see, and I don't even have measure numbers in this edition. So let me see my other edition. So I usually use, by the way, for those wanting to play Chopin, I like to use the Paderewski edition, although the uh, Henley is very good. It's a bit more expensive. And the new Polish edition, which is only uh, maybe a couple, de- a decade or so old, uh, and that's edited by Jan Ekier, that is a very good edition, but, again, quite expensive. So Right. Um, but it's I always, I always lean towards Henley. I like this. I like their stuff. It's yeah. very good. Oh, so here it is. In measure um, 74. 74, okay. 74. And in the recording, I, I should really find this for you in, in my YouTube recording. So, you know, I, I urge all of you to listen to my recording on YouTube, although there are some other wonderful recordings I will talk about. I'll just say a caveat. Obviously, it's a live performance for my final doctoral recital. 2011 and there are a couple of mistakes here and there so please <laughs> be generous with your listening uh, and it's funny when i got to this section i was so excited to present it at uh, because you know i'm presenting for the faculty and and uh this is my final recital to basically be accepted for my doctor to get my doctoral degree right luckily i was accepted i actually was given a dean's honor as you know one of the top recitals of the year oh, and fabulous. Yeah, and that, that was cool, and, and I was so excited about these two measures because I was doing something that I was pretty sure nobody had performed before, at least this from this edition. And it's a French edition, and I was in Montreal, which is French-speaking, so I thought oh, this is right. going to be cool. I was so nervous about it that I messed up the measure or two before something. <laughs> but luckily, these two measures, 74 and 75, I, I did get. Uh, so much uh, different voice leading in the top, different melody, and different harmonies uh, that come about. And that's really the, the only difference in this uh, in this piece between editions. But that's just to say Chopin published his works in different countries so he could make royalties, but as a result, we get different versions of, of his pieces. Um, and I just, I found that and I thought, oh, that, that's pretty nifty. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. So the reason I take that repeat of the exposition is that uh, on the first time I do it as written in the standard, you know, published edition that's kind of the modern edition. Right. And on the second, on the repeat, I use the 1845 Messonnier edition. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, just for those two measures. So that's kind of 
that's to show that uh oh here's here's this this just something different homage to the yeah that's, yeah that's yeah, really paying, uh, paying homage to the tradition there so um that, that was kind of fun to put together and then um yeah so that's that's kind of the history i guess a little bit of the piece where i got into it um we can certainly delve into more specifics about the structure and you know characteristics about the movements
because one of the movements and and, and then I, I want to delve into kind of the, the some of the um, um, some of the themes and themes but, mm-hmm. but um, the second movement I believe is rather short um, mm-hmm. and it's fast but it, it, it leads right into a largo um, into a, a slower movement and uh, I'm curious it, does, is that why would that be considered a completely separate movement versus um, introduction or um, a, a, an idea that, that is part of the third movement? Yeah, that's good. I mean, we talked, I remember with the Beethoven, we talked about Ataka because the Les Adieux Sonata has a second movement leading right into the third as an Ataka. In right. this piece, another thing about this whole structural thing is that second, third, and fourth movements are sort of connected by the that Ataka feel. Um, the, the second movement formally does stand on its own. So the second movement is a scherzo, which uh, is Italian for joke. Um, mm-hmm. It's much more lighthearted. It's sort of it's just yeah, it's a, jumping it's a, around. Um, and it's a scherzo trio. So you get the trio section, and usually a scherzo trio, they're, they're very different characteristics between the scherzo part, which is much more lighthearted and jumpy, and the trio... Uh, this is still in, in three, by the way, so the meter is one, two, three, one, two, three. Um, whereas Which in the first... That kind of off-kilter, um, you know, jokey, you know, mm-hmm. feel to it. Yeah, yeah, and then that second section, the trio section, is much more um, vocal, da, 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 you know, um, very beautiful. And, and uh, yeah, still in the same time and meter and things like that a lot of uh, held chords and suspensions and very rich harmonies right uh, be- just beautiful and then it goes back as the um, form would suggest to that original scherzo theme so it's kind of an aba or what we, we would call a ternary form so most scherzo trios most scherzos are scherzos and trios or you have minuet and trio is, is more common in the baroque era but uh, you get that three-part form aba and so it does pretty well end, dun, dun, da-da-dum, or whatever. That's, right. that's a pretty good ending. But there's only, there are only two rests, and the tradition is kind of to go right into the Largo because the Largo starts with an, a very small introduction, almost reminds me of Beethoven Pathetique Sonata, where you have that Largo introduction for a page mm-hmm. before you get into the main theme. Um, and in, here, in this case, the main theme is in the same... Um, same uh, tempo, but you have that introduction, da 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 dum, ba, dum, uh, kind of introducing maybe horns or whatever, fortissimo, and then this echo effect, and then you get this beautiful da 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 this theme, um, which is so never-ending and, and melismatic, it just goes on forever. Right. So I think that's why... The, the connection between the second movement and third movement works so well because you have a big ending. It's it's in E flat, and he does yeah. this very, very ingeniously with keys.
So the second movement is in E flat major, which uh, for B minor is a respelling of the major third. So in B minor, um, you know, if you had, if you're kind of using modal mixture here, the third note would be a D, but if you had a major, it'd be a D sharp. But uh, that becomes E flat. It's respelled. Um, and in the middle section, it's kind of respelled back to, to D sharp. But you end in E flat, and then the third movement starts with D sharp because you're, you're sort of in maybe G sharp minor. Um, yeah. But then it goes to B major. So yeah. uh, he, he's very and deft so, at connecting so them. Those, those, just to, to clarify, so what that means is that it, it sounds the same. It is the same notes. It's the same. In fact, it, it's octaves, and it's the same thing that you hear. You hear the same bump, you know, bum, 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 and then mm -hmm. bum, and then he goes into the yeah. Goes. yeah, so let me see. Uh, let me see if I can play. I should go to the piano and just set up there for a bit while we talk. Um, yeah, and um, it is it is remarkable because a, a lot of times when you hear a largo, when I think of a largo, you think of of you know uh, the the um, you know nice and pretty and beautiful, and this is a it's got a lot more meat on the bones, if you will. Yeah. This particular largo. Yeah, sorry for all that noise. So, you know, if you've you can still hear me, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's fine. Yeah, it's, it's a little far. Let me let me move this closer. Okay, so if you end the the second movement, you have um, she's done. So that's an E flat, and then this third movement starts. <laughs> that's awesome. That's fabulous, yeah. And so you yeah, hear that da 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 da. Yeah, what a transition, and it's only a two-measure largo transition. And then he he does some very interesting chords. You know, this is a respelling. I'm not going to get into all the details, but this is a um, G B D E sharp. So it's actually a um, German augmented sixth chord. Uh, going to this. So five stabbing on B major. Now we've gone into the established key, but B major, and the theme starts. Yeah. So it's such a good transition. That that transition from you know that E flat into B major, and that's mm -hmm. not an easy. Easy transition. No, no, I mean, for so him to pull that off like that is really remarkable. Yeah, he pulls it off in three measures, basically, three and a half measures. And then you've got this beautiful theme. So this kind of continues. Uh, and it's this theme to me in the third movement is a little bit reminiscent of what I would say the second theme in the first movement. Uh, at least the character is, is sort of similar. So if we look at the First movement. So this the third movement is much much slower. Obviously, I'm, I'm kind of pushing it now. You'll get to hear that right. in the recording. And in the first movement, we've got this. Um, there's the theme that I'm thinking of. 
I just I love that um, he's so good at writing these these uh, these melodies. They're just so beautiful. They really are, and and they are they are very um, uh, like like they're they're very singable. Like they, mm -hmm. like people can relate to them. They they sound like something you would hear on an opera stage or something. Yeah, yeah. And the second, so the third movement is also sort of a ternary form like the second movement, although it's much longer. This is quite a long movement. I don't remember my timing for it. I should look, but it's something like seven or eight minutes, I think. The, yeah, I think this, I'm, trying, I'm trying to remember, because I think the last movement, it was about five minutes. So I think yeah. you're maybe close, maybe close to nine minutes. Uh -huh. Yeah, the second section, the B section, sort of, of the third movement, it's a very interesting uh, pedaling and very interesting notation. So have this um so this is the metronome yeah yeah so that's the second section but all these uh notes are sort of open the top oh can i have you get, get a little closer to the mic oh sorry sorry so i'm i'm speaking of measure 29. Yeah, like measure 29 in that area. Yeah, let me let me raise the mic here a little bit. Uh, wait one second. And and what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting, I don't know if this is what you're talking about, is the rhythm of that. It's such a beautiful line, but the rhythm is is very um it's different because you have those dotted um you know those dotted eighths and such with the triplets. Yeah, oh, hang on, hang on. Yeah, sorry. I, I was trying to reset the mic. Let's see if this is a little better. Yeah, the the triple the notation uh, is more triplets now, although that keeps the the same rhythm from the eighth notes from the previous section. Um, we're now in E major instead of in B major, so we've basically gone from it sort of sounds like a five to one or one to four. Yeah, and um, I just I love this uh, theme. That's really beautiful. So beautiful. And you get this counter melody in the left hand. Oh, that's almost, uh, I mean, you could, you could, you could almost hear that, um, you know, on a, uh, on a campfire. I mean, that's just yeah. gorgeous. That, that, yeah. that's very, very it beautiful. Very well done. Very well crafted. Um, such a beautiful movement. And I remember, struggling when I played it, when I learned this, just reading it, like, how do I really hold all those things? And you just realize that, okay, what is the sound that he was going for? What is the effect that he wants? Um, what's important to hold? What's not so important? Uh, and you make those sort of artistic decisions while you're, while you're learning it. And, uh, it's, it's such a worthwhile piece. Uh, it's, it took a lot of work. And the memory for this piece is very tough because even in a simple section like this, 
he might change one note in a harmony when it comes back. And uh, it's like, oh, which, which uh, if you take the wrong exit, sort of, and right. you, could, you could get back to the beginning. And, and I've heard of people doing that. I haven't luckily uh, <laughs> done that myself, but I've heard of people like, so that's why when we talk about sonata form, you usually have the exposition repeated. And that was so that listeners at the time would, would get those themes in their ears, what was mm -hmm. the expectation of what was to come. And that way the development could be a little bit more of a surprise to kind of change things up a bit. So you maybe you hear like, and then you hear again, and then the development goes or something. Yeah. Um, and so that expectation was set up. And when you, when you take those, uh, the ends of those, the end of an exposition could be very similar, but depending on the first or the second ending, you go in different directions with the harmony. So I've known people that have, that have gone the second time and gotten and then taken the first ending again accidentally, and then you can't go to the harmony of the development. It just doesn't right, work. Right, you're stuck. You're stuck. So you're like, oh god, I got to do this whole thing again. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a choice. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me play it three times for you. Yeah. That's right. Amazing. Oh, that's, yeah. that's fabulous. Well, and and and. Um, and I was going to say, as I listened to your recording of it, it really felt like, um, I don't want to sound like you were laboring because that's not what I mean, mm -hmm. but, it, but that third movement, a lot of times when we hear somebody play something fast and spectacular and it's, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, I know how much work goes into that and that's amazing to, to hear, yeah. but I think it's underappreciated the amount of time and, and the amount of attention that is brought to playing something like this third movement. Yeah, I, I actually think in some ways, I mean, I love the other movements, and we'll get into the fourth, which is second and fourth are just knuckle-busting, very right. difficult. I think overall, the first movement is the most difficult because of all the things you've got to, to do. Well, um, it's a marathon, too. It's so long, especially it, if you're taking that repeat. Yeah, it's a big piece. But the third movement, I, I really like the my interpretation, and I might change some things here and there, but I, I felt that I understood a lot, and I... And I loved bringing out certain things in it. Um, it mm -hmm. was just such a pleasure to work work on, and it feels so good. This is when we get back to uh, your original statement of Chopin being a quintessential uh, composer for the piano. He writes so idiomatically for it, so that when you play it, it feels good. It like really, yeah. There, there's a certain sensation when you feel it. It's, just, it's so like, ah, you know, so so nice, and it fits. Um, and there are other composers. Liszt fits very well, I think, into the hand too, but not in the same way. Beethoven does not always fit so well into the hand. Scriabin, in some ways, but you have to have a very flexible left hand. When you when you kind of see the composers, uh, how they write, you realize what kind of motions and technique you would need to do to to play those things. But Chopin, even his, there are some difficult stretches and some awkwardnesses, but. Uh, then, then you're like, oh, it's this fits so nicely, you know. It right, so right, well. it fits. I feel that way about about Bach. If I get the fingering, I know I got the fingering yeah. right when it all of a sudden fits like a glove. You yeah, know? yeah. It, it's almost like when you play this, it's such a, a sensuous physical feeling that mm -hmm. you get. It's uh, not just the oral sensation you get, but you really feel connected to this music. Um, that's you know, beautiful. I think that's really true. Yeah, pedaling is another issue we, we didn't even talk about, but I, I have to bring that up because we talked about the development of the piano, and 
in Chopin's day, the, the big piano makers, especially in Paris, were Pleyel and Arard. And those were, they were making beautiful pianos and, uh, you know, using now cast iron frames and basically the same range that we have to, a little bit smaller. Uh, they might have had uh, about seven octaves. You know, now we have seven and a half. And I, I actually played on an 1880s, circa 1880s Steinway in Montreal, one of the concerts. Some Actually, some videos on YouTube I have on that piano. Oh, wow. And it's, it only has 85 keys as opposed to 88. And I was playing a piece from the 20th century, which actually requires the high B flat, which is the 86th key. Uh, and it didn't have it on that piano. So I kept, there's an octave, I kept hitting wood with my <laughs> pinky. So um, that was a little bit. You had a bruise on the tip of your pinky by the end. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but Chopin, by his day, you know, the piano range had expanded a lot since Beethoven's and, and certainly since Mozart's day. And the cast iron frame was allowing much bigger sound. So I actually got to play. I played on a couple playels, P-L-E-Y-E-L, and Erard is E-R-A-R-D. And um, there's a really cool museum in, in Ashburn, Massachusetts. It's the Frederick Collection. And it's just a husband and wife that have this huge collection of pianos all the way from you know, early harpsichords to modern concert grands. And, and they're kind of arranged in chronological order. So I got to play a little bit of Chopin on the Playel that he would have, you know, the same model that Chopin would have composed for and performed on. And it's a totally different tone. Um, the sustain is much different. It doesn't have quite the robust sustain of a modern concert instrument. Uh, the pedal, as a result, works differently. And so some of Chopin's pedaling and some of the thickness of texture that we hear uh, in these pieces wouldn't have been the same on his pianos. It would have been a slightly thinner sound because the, the sustain would have, it would have died away more quickly. So his, his pedaling markings that he puts and uh, the edition that I have uses the original pedal markings that Chopin wrote. Although sometimes it's, it's hard to tell they were so fussy uh, and so specific that it was like, okay, what, what exactly are you going for here? Um, but it doesn't always work on a modern instrument. And so you have to adjust a little bit to what would have the sound, what would the sound have been like? Um, right. I know we talked about this before. And when you spoke with Wim Winters about the audience, um, uh, you know, what kind of ears they had, the reception of the audience, it's different from today. Um, yeah. and the holes were different. The pianos were different. So, so we have to think about what, uh, what they would have heard. What was the composer going for um, and right. make those, those slight adjustments. There are some places in here where he holds the pedal for a long time, an extended period of time. And it kind of bleeds the sound a bit, which I love that effect. And it remi always reminds me of, again, we're kind of, kind of comparing two composers in their piano sonatas, but going back to Beethoven, the Opus 31, number two, Tempest Sonata, uh, which is a wonderful piece. And he has an opening, you know, And, and in the middle section, it comes back, and you're supposed to hold the pedal down. I think I remember this. Oh, yeah. So all of that is like all that in one pedal. Um, but it works, and in Beethoven's day, it would have even died away faster. So, uh, and so do, do, well, are there publishers that will try to take that into account when they, when they edit, will they try to, you know, maybe minimize some of the pedaling or a little, make yeah. notes? So the Paderewski edition that I have actually, the nice thing about that is it has a, 
it has some end notes, um, some commentary on the piece, and it talks about the choice that their editors made in keeping with the tradition, let's say from the first edition from a certain country, and that's what they've published, uh, understanding that there could be some slight amendations that you would make for a modern concert instrument. So, yeah, I think I think most scholars know that. I think most pianists, hopefully, if they have good teachers, are taught those kinds of things, that the ear ultimately is the one that dictates. Yeah, um, but well, because we because you and and it's you know um, I wanted to mention this before, but but you know, we we just saw a, uh, um, you invited me to an online performance last <laughs> night, and it was wonderful to hear, um, and and some of, some of them play some of the performers played it live, and, and we had a few that were recording, um, mm-hmm. but to me one of the interesting things that I that I thought about as I was listening was um, the difference when when somebody's playing in their studio how the sound is so affected versus somebody playing in a concert hall mm-hmm. and how, and, and, and as I was listening to it, I, I was thinking if I were playing that, you know, what would, what, what adjustments would I have to make for the sound to be right for that setting? And it's something yeah. that, that you don't really think about until you perform in a lot of different, you know, yeah. settings, but it's something that, that really is, is important. Yeah, it is. And, and I think if you have good teachers and good training and people that are aware of that, those are the ones that are going to tell you, you know, to listen for those things. I rem- I didn't think about that when I was growing up, you know, as a, as a kid, I had a decent piano at, at home and I played at my teacher's house. She had a very nice piano and, and fine. I didn't, I did all the studio recitals there. And, and um, the, the one thing about pianists versus other instrumentalists is that we've got to change instruments all the time. And you and right. I have talked about that issue, but um you know, you really have to adjust to your, your space and what the piano is capable of. And I remember I played um, for one of the greatest musicians and pianists I, I ever knew, Andre Watts. He he was an artist in residence in Maryland when I was there, and I played in a master class, uh, Sambach. And it was in the big hall, actually. And he talked about the whole idea and concept of projection, and, and you might play piano, uh, I mean, the dynamic level, that is, being soft. Yeah. Or pianissimo, which is very soft, and you might play that for yourself, but you've got to play it. You know, the cliche is that you play it for the person in the last row, but um, it's true that you really have to think about voicing a lot more, pedaling a lot more. When you have a larger hall, you have to think about the resonance and the time it takes for for sound to bounce around. Um, and if you have a very what we call a wet hall, where there's a large resonance, so the the time delay for the sound might be two or three seconds. Uh, it's different than when you play in a very dry hall uh, and you need maybe more pedal. So, right. And when right. I was recording, not this stuff, but some, some, of my, some of my CDs, I talked with my recording engineer about that. We had a great hall, which was, I think, like one and a half or two seconds. But he's recorded in, in a church. There's a big church in Montreal, which he said he claims that there's a 16 second reverb. There. Oh, wow. And it just, you, you hit, hit a gong, you know, you play something, it just goes on and on and on. So you can't hear the next tone for a while, clearly at least. Oh, everything yeah. is twice as slow. We, it yeah. is, we're going to do the single beat method there. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Half beat yeah. method. Well, right. right. Well, and I think, you know, and, and, it, and I think a lot of times as musicians, we talk about ear training and, and I think it's almost like we, we think about it wrong. We think about it in terms of like, um, harmonization, which is, I'm not saying these aren't important. They are important. We think about harmonization, um, intervals, you know, what's, how does one note sound against another and things, Mm -hmm. but as a performer, 
it's really about the sound that what are you trying to accomplish um, and in fact, we had this conversation um, when you were working with me and it was, it was so valuable mm-hmm. to me as far as like trying to create in your head what you want something to sound like. Yeah, at that moment. Trying to do it and then at the same time assess whether you accomplished it and then making yeah. adjustments as you go. And yeah. that's a very difficult thing to do, but that's something that, 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 that to me is ear training versus like, was that a five chord? Was that a dominant? Oh, sure. <laughs> that, that's more of the analytical side of it. And, and you bring up a lot, again, so many important things. Um, the One of the qualities of playing piano, I think that's so important that goes beyond music is that that self-reflection. And I know I'm sort of, I'm a musician. I've chosen this career path and whatnot, but I always think if, if more people in the world seriously study music, I mean, to a, to a high level, um, or even a medium level, we'd have far fewer problems because the the self-realization that you need and to criticize yourself positively and see what needs to change instead of just saying that was wrong, it was bad, but why or what do you need to do um, yeah, is so very bad. important. And and when we talk about, I think when I think it was like some Mozart that you played, and I I was saying every second you have to kind of take a snapshot. And I think of it in, in a picture term, or, or if you're a director, movie director, what is the that soundscape that you want to create at that second? Uh, and then the next second, is something holding over from the previous second, or is it clear? Um, and you have to have that, that mental picture image all the time while you're playing. And if something right, you know, goes wrong or something, whatever, you have to readjust that. And right. always, you know, constantly be thinking about that while you perform. That's what makes live performance so difficult. Is yeah. You have to be in the moment all the time for so long. Um, when we think of sports, you know, I, I often try with sports analogies uh, because piano is, and music is in a way a, a sport. I mean, it's yeah. physical. Um, we should have sports trainers like they do. I mean, we at music schools, it's it's pathetic that they're they're lacking in so much uh, infrastructure. But whatever, you know, you, there should be an Alexander teacher. Uh, all the time and, and people oh, absolutely. are talking well, about I, I, It's funny, I, I do, I encourage my students, you know, to, to have some sort of workout regime, mm-hmm. you know, to, in order to, you know, because if you're going to seriously play the piano, you need to, you need to be physical, physically in shape, be capable yeah. of doing it. Yeah. The, the, if you think of the people that get the most, or some of the most injuries, I mean, pianists are all the time injuring their, themselves. It's, it's a hard instrument. There's, uh, you need a lot of energy and we, we have, just more repertoire than every other instrument. And we can practice longer than any other instrument. I mean, the right. conservatory, the practice, the most practice, or the, the practices that go the most, the longest are pianists and usually next violinists. You know, if you're a singer, you just, you cannot practice more than two or three hours a day. Your vocal cords won't take it. You know, a, a tubist, their embouchure won't last more than an hour or two a day. Right. And they just can't. I mean, luckily, I guess it works out. They don't have a, a ton of repertoire to go through. Um, but a pianist, I mean, it's not unheard of, of for a pianist to practice for six, eight hours. Oh, yeah. I, I, had pr- I had a friend of mine who's teaching in Ohio. And when he was growing up, he practiced 10 hours a day, pretty normal for like 10, five, 10 years. And I had a lot of classmates at, uh, at Eastman that practiced six, eight hours. Yeah. I think that's too much. I think five, five hours is a good, if you can really focus and get all those good five hours in, um, that's plenty. But, right. um, well, yeah, I, I want to jump into this. So, so at the end of this third movement, I think yeah. it's interesting because he does have like a, almost a, what, what sounds to me 
and I don't know how we would think about this theoretically, um, but it sounds to me almost like a minor four to a one going into um, mm. going into B major as the final cadence. Um, mm. You know, cause it's it's almost like an E an, a minor an E minor seven, and then you have the um, then you have well, oh, the, the very end of the third movement. Here? Yeah, the very the last two chords. Oh, yeah. So this is just an augmented chord, but yeah. it's a common tone. Oh yeah, because you have the D, have the D sharp. Um, so it's like it's like a. It does sound like a piano. Almost, uh, sorry, almost like a symphonic, or almost a um, flagel feeling. I'm not sure, but yeah.
And then you go, you get into the, the finale, which yeah. is, uh, you know, the tempo, it says presto non tanto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and again, this is a very cool transition. We talked about the transition from the second to the third movement. He does a similar thing. So we've, we're ending on B major with the tonic in the bass, but then right. he keeps that off. He starts with the fifth five, which is just F sharp. Now that you don't know it's just the fifth if you're in B major or B minor. It turns out you're in B minor, but he kind of makes that modal mixture very seamless. Um, and yeah, so when you when you have non tanto, it's you know you don't want to go too much. It's it's presto is already very fast. Um, and this is a very tough movement. I, I remember when I play this movement that I always have to think, okay, not too fast in the beginning because. Uh, formally, so just for those interested in the form of this, it's called a rondo. The rondo form is like an A section, then a B section, which is contrasting. And then the A section comes back maybe slightly different, so we can say A or A1. And then there's a C section, which is a little different. And then the A comes back again, could be altered again. So it could be A, A1, or A2. So it's like A, B, A, C, A, uh, Abacada, or something like that, A, B, A, C, A, B, A. That's a pretty uh, typical rondo form. And in this uh, rondo, the the theme is like, sorry. If you can get if you can get the mic closer to your mouth, I, I'm missing in between oh, the. Sure. Why, why don't I explain that part? Again? And, and oh. why why you're why you're moving you're moving things around? Because um, right when you start that melody, it, it it makes the note to be agitato in in this score, and it really does feel like I loved how you played this because you have the, it's almost this relentless, and and I always get that when you when it's a, when it's a six eight time signature meaning there's six beats in the measure you feel it's one two three four five six one two three four five six but it's in two so it's like boom 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 it's almost it's, i mean it's very um it's going yeah, so, somewhere. it's it's it, it's relentless in its feel yeah so it's it's an oh that's better i can hear it now my mic my headphones uh, it's in six eight which is a compound meter and uh, six eight is different from three four precisely because it sounds like it's in two in groups of two. So six, uh, six, eight is six uh, beats of eighth notes per measure, but they're grouped in groups of three eighth notes together. So you have a group of eight, uh, a group of three, and then a group of three. Um, so it really sounds like it's in two uh, as opposed to three, four, and that kind of drives it. So there's, yeah. uh, there are sections in here which, uh, which have what's called hemiola. That's a technical term for it sounds like it's maybe in three again, when you're in two, or it sounds like it's two when you're in three, and he can do that with a compound meter because you can just you can play around a bit. But uh, I was starting off the theme like this in B minor. That sounds so bluesy. That sounds so much like Oscar yeah. Peterson right there. <laughs> yeah, that was really a dumbed down version of it, but. Basically, each time it comes back, it becomes more intense. So the first time is just uh, like triplets in both. And then when it comes back to E minor, 
Oh, I need I need your mic closer. I'm losing oh, you completely. Let, let me see. Let me see where that minor is. Uh, gosh, I don't know why. Uh, okay, so it comes back in measure 101, or actually 100. But then the left hand, instead of doing, uh, you know, instead of doing triplets, it has uh, four against three. So it's, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, what is this? So you have four against Uh, it's so cool. I love those rhythmic games because it, it, it absolutely um, it, it it throws the listener off, and and it just it just really um, compounds that agitado feel. Yeah, it helps propel the music and give that agitado, as you said. So when I teach my students, usually two against three is a fairly um, good rhythm to teach early on. I mean, two against one is the most common that we start off with beginners, you know, like half and two quarters at the same time. Right. That's, that's hard enough. When they get more intermediate, you start introducing triplets on their own and then triplets versus duples. Uh, that's a little bit tricky. That's always a right. transition that, 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 period. That, 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 then right, when that. they get pretty advanced, like uh, for me, the first piece that had four against three was fantasy impromptu. You know? So it has... And, and what's difficult about that is not only you have to think about those things as you're playing, but you also have to like, you, you've got to let your hands be completely independent. Otherwise it just will not work. Yeah. And you, you also have to study what we call the composite rhythm is what it sounds right. like when those things are together. And so when you put four against three, I always kind of make it a math equation with my students. You have to uh, subdivide it to the lowest, whatever the lowest common denominator is, which is 12. So you have to have like 12 little little uh, pieces, let's say, or, or metronome clicks, let's say 12 clicks. And the, the one that's three, groups of three, will be a group of four, four, and four. And then the group of four will be three, 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 three. And so you realize, okay, the, the three group plays on one, five, and nine. And the group of four plays on one, four, uh, one, three, four, five, six, seven, and ten. You know, so it's going to be like... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, like that. Right. And and that's tough. And then you're going much faster than that, obviously. But once you get used to that, right? But you got to do it slow, otherwise you can't do it fast. Right. Right. Past yeah. the ink and butter. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So you have. <laughs> And then it comes back at the end of the eighth theme, really heavy hurt hitter. And this is this is a hard place. Um, let me see. Where is this at? Now we're going to dun, 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 like one forty four. Um, no, oh, two o. Oh, wait, two o seven. Now we have six tuplets in the. So it's basically twice as fast. We've gone three, four to six. It's really upping the, the tempo. So the left hand is just. Oh, sorry. So I. And, and what's great about that, 
I mean, to me as a pianist, that's actually in a way easier to play because it's more like you, you can get that rhythm, but because you've, you've already built into that four against three and you've already built in some of those, those, um, poly, um, you know, those poly rhythms and stuff like that, like all of a sudden that just adds this, this, this other level of hype to it. Oh yeah. I the build up to it is amazing too. I, let's see it. That's so great. I mean, the harmonies are so, I mean, that's just sounds, that sounds right out of Stravinsky or something. Yeah. And it's carnal. This part, this place when it comes back is, it's actually a, the hardest thing of performing this is that you're so high on adrenaline that you can really undermine yourself. You can go super quickly and then completely fall apart. And then when it gets right. even faster in the, the last section, which is sort of a coda, um, yeah, it's just like, you, you can just fall apart. And I remember a couple times performing it, it's such a rush. Okay, calm down, okay, you know, think. You don't don't get so into the keys that you're just pushing and pushing uh, your, your muscle memory is going to fail you or you're going to have some serious stress-related issues in your muscles later on. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a rush.
Well, let's, let's, let's step away from the piano a little bit and, and let's, let's wrap this up. I, I, I mean, there's so much we could go into this. I mean, there's, I, I, I really feel like we've just scratched the surface and, and, and I would implore somebody, um, if you have not listened to, um, this particular sonata, listen to it and listen to it with some of these things we've talked about in mind and start to get these themes in your head. And it will, I think it will, it will, it will change you. Um, just like studying music will change you as a person, listening to great music will change you as a person because it, it'll force your brain to, to think a little bit, um, it puts you yourself on the same wavelength as, as some of these great composers in the same thought process. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the great, we've talked about the greatness of Chopin, but, but let's do a little sum up, like mm -hmm. in your mind, like where does Chopin stand with the great composers? Why is it important that we remember him this year as, you know, his, the 210th anniversary of his birth? I mean, why is he significant? I mean, he lived 37, you know, 38 years. What, mm -hmm. uh, in that's such a short lifespan. Why are we still playing him today? Yeah, it's funny. Some of the great composers live such a short, such short lives. Uh, Schubert, I mean, he was 1797 to 1828. He was uh, 30. I think he just made 31. Sh Mozart was like, what, 50, 70, 56, yeah. 91. He was like 34. Chopin was 39. It's almost like um, they get not burned out, but it's like the, like the, 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 their their lights are so bright that it. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, I think you know. Look, I'm a pianist. Uh, obviously, Chopin is is really a pianist composer um and so I, I think he's so important for that maybe other instrumentalists other musicians can look to a beethoven or, or a brahms and and that can be more universal but but i think even though piano uh chopin just wrote for piano he he uh extended certain techniques and harmonies so much and and piano started to have such an influence and become the predominant instrument um that it's really started to affect everything else. And so he, he is really a central figure in that uh, and played a central role in expanding the possibilities for, for pianists and musicians. He left a, a great, you know, legacy with, uh, with his music, um, inspired many other composers of the time. He didn't have maybe the teaching legacy of Liszt or Leszczycki at the time. Those were the two big teachers, you know, Chopin mostly taught, uh, uh, upper middle class and, and wealthy women, because at the time that was what you did. If you wanted to become a, an eligible bachelorette, uh, you you learned how to sew, cook, and play piano for whatever right. reason. Now nowadays it seems uh, an anachronism. It's kind of ridiculous. But most of his students were, were really female and and uh, you know didn't necessarily go on great careers. He didn't have a huge performing career himself. I think he performed less than thirty times fewer than 30 times in public and and yet uh, even with that he he made such an impression on the next generation and his fellow the generation of composers and pianists that they you know they they just changed the way they looked at music and the possibilities that there were um that's we, what we talked about before is somebody has to break through in something and you know if it's banister with the four minute mile you know it, with chopin it was maybe breaking through some of the the barriers of acceptance of what harmony could do, of what what uh, the pedaling effects could do, um, or the lyricism, you know, bringing bringing all these things together in one musical piece and and creating such a perfect gem. Uh, I, I think that's why it's important to study him. You can get so much 
uh, when you when you learn his music and kids learn his stuff and all the way up to uh, you know professional concert pianists are always finding more and more in those um, I just want to say maybe maybe this can be a place to recommend a couple recordings to listen to that I was certainly inspired by uh, and there are so many I'm gonna leave off some but some of the highlights for me are um, William Capel he has a fantastic recording I think it's from the Frick collection I'm not sure uh, Dinu Lipati, it's a wonderful recording. Emil Gillels, I like his a lot. Um, Cyprian Katsaris, he's he's a Cypriot French pianist, and uh, he has a recital from Carnegie Hall. Uh, and then Daniel Trefano from sort of the newer generation. Of course, always Evgeny Kisin is great, and, and uh, Zimmerman is great. And Martha Argerich just produced uh, one she has one from when she was younger but with the coronavirus you know COVID everything she did a um, a remote recital she was the only one in the hall and they just released her recording of this and she's like in her 70s oh, wow. now but what a beast you know she she can do anything on the on the piano I some things are a little rushed for me you know but just the capabilities she has are, are amazing and and another one I would mention, although he's some sometimes polarizing in his playing, is Ivo Pogorelic, the, the early recording of that I I like a lot. Um, yeah. So Alan Pletnyov is another. So there are just so many great recordings of there. I could name more and more. Uh, and I listened, you know, when I prepared this, I listened to all these recordings and tried to get ideas from them, and see what you know what I would might change or what I might try to emulate. Uh, and that's what we all all try to do. But I think just to get back to your point, studying this great music, uh, there's so much that you can learn about yourself. And if you take it seriously, and if you really put your your heart and soul and, you know, not to be too cliche about it, but um, it will be very revealing of who you are and your capabilities. And it's very humbling. Uh, I, I know a lot of pianists and people that, that maybe don't approach it in that humble method. Uh, and they just, okay, I, I'm great. I'm the performer, as you were saying, list was kind of the beginning of the, the rock star era and the performer is more important than the, and uh, the spotlights on them. And that's true to an extent, but, but uh, in this case, you really have to show humility towards uh, this great, this great work, this great art. Um, and yeah. I think you gain more from it. So. I, yeah, I think so. I think, uh, um, you know, it, it's one of those, um, as, as I listen to, as I play Chopin, it, it, it does, um, it increases your ability to express, um, and not just musically. I really, mm -hmm. I really believe this. I think, I think the, that's why music is important because it allows you to be more expressive in other aspects of your life, which just mm -hmm. enriches your life. You know, it's, it's, um, the more ways that you can, um, uh, express your, your, what what is happening around you um mm -hmm. i think the, the the better the world becomes you know yeah um, so i really i want to thank you Elias, so much and and i have a um a little bit of an announcement and of love remains and i'm very excited to announce this that that we're going to have some um you know Elias has been kind of a regular on our show and um and we've been talking and i think uh um you know he's going to bring some some other artists and some other um, people from the musical world um, 
um, to the show, um, in which, which the two of us were kind of guest hosts and, and co-host with, and I'm super excited to, to start this part of, of, and if love remains, it's going to be a very exciting time. Um, I think, I, I think the first person we're going to have on is, uh, Daniel Shapiro. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't know if we could announce it. Yeah. So Daniel Shapiro is a, uh, professor at Cleveland Institute of Music. He's one of the most sought after piano teachers in the world and performers of, of Beethoven, for sure, and Schubert. So he's actually in the midst right now of performing the entire cycle of Beethoven sonatas in a series of, I don't know how many, nine or 10 concerts or something, one a month. He just did the second one um, a couple nights ago. Yeah, watched that. yeah, and then he's going to be doing one, one a month. And so we're going to have him on the show and, and ask him, Hopefully some some cool questions. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm very I am so pleased and excited to have Elias kind of in an expanded role here, and 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 I'm excited to see where this takes um, the show and and the kind of things that, that we can do. So I'm very grateful and and again thank oh, you thanks. for your support, Elias. I really oh, thanks it. also, Mike. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see at least where we can take the the musical portion. I know your show does so many great things, and you have so many. You know genres and fields that you that you discuss and talk with experts about um so at least in the in the musical field i i love to help uh, help direct things and and bring some great uh, some great people here can't wait it's gonna be fun so um you can find more on elias at uh and uh, and look him up on YouTube. Um, you'll see some, of, including this recording of the of the Sonata Number Three, um, Opus Fifty Eight by Frederic Chopin. And um, look, we're gonna we're gonna cut it off here. It's been a wonderful discussion, and I can't wait to do it again. We'll talk soon. All right. Okay. Thanks, Mike. This is And If Love Remains. 